I think justice is fairness. I think justice is everybody being heard. I think justice is treating people who are similarly situated in similar ways. And I think justice is making right things that have gone wrong. Hello and welcome to See You in Court, the podcast that informs you about the Georgia civil justice system, what it means to you, and how it protects individual rights. This podcast is a collaboration between the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Your hosts are Robin Frazier-Clark and Lester Tate, who are both past presidents of the State Bar of Georgia and currently serve on the board of directors of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. And now this episode of See You in Court. Good morning, friends and lovers of the law, and welcome to See You in Court. I am Robin Fraser-Clark, and with us uh, today is our co-host, the distinguished Lester Tate. Uh, Lester, I, I'm wondering how are you which, doing? I'm wondering what Lester Tate is distinguished, because certainly not certainly not this one, but but I'm, I'm doing great, and it's great to be back recording another uh, episode of our podcast. It's, uh, you know, it's it's. It's too hot for golf, and so all our listeners can pour them a, an old-fashioned and uh, plug in the podcast and uh, enjoy a, a good hour with the law here. Uh, I, I, I purposefully use distinguished, <laughs> and, I, and I have a little bit uh, more to say about this later, but I use the word distinguished because Lester was recently named a distinguished leader by the Daily Report or Law.com. So congratulations, Thank Lester, you. on, on that you. honor. I appreciate um, it. And, and since you met, mentioned bourbon uh, in the form of an old-fashioned, I wanted to let our, our listeners know that our friend Brian, Brian Hara, who wrote Bourbon Justice, he just uh, posted that his book is going international, be internationally published. Wow. So we're happy about all the the rest of the world learning about Kentucky bourbon. That's great. I got, by the way, my son uh, helped me. I've now got the five keys of Blade and Bow. So I'm going to be able to join the Blade and Bow Five Keys Club. <laughs> that, that was big news at the Tate House, you know. Oh, boy. Well, uh, before we get too far off the rails, I just want to say we're so excited about having our guest uh, today, who is presiding Justice Nels Peterson of the Supreme Court of Georgia. Uh, Justice Peterson, good morning or good afternoon, and and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome. Absolutely. Welcome. I want to tell our, our listeners a little bit about presiding Justice Peterson. Uh, he has an incredible, extraordinary uh, history and, and bi- biography. So I wanted to share that with everyone. Um, Presiding Justice Nels S.D. Peterson was appointed by Governor Nathan Deal to the Supreme Court of Georgia, effective January 1, 2017. He was elected statewide for a six-year term in 2018. He previously served as a judge of the Georgia Court of Appeals, to which he was appointed by Governor Deal, effective January 1, 2016. Presiding Justice Peterson graduated from Kennesaw State University with a BS in political science and a minor in economics. While at KSU, he served as president of student government and chair of the Student Advisory Council to the Board of Regents and was named KSU Student of the Year and Outstanding Senior in Political Science. Presiding Justice Peterson received his JD from Harvard Law School. At Harvard, He was executive editor of the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. 
Executive Vice President of the Federalist Society, and was a finalist in the Ames Moot Court competition. Upon graduation from law school, Presiding Justice Peterson served as a law clerk to Judge William H. Pryor, Jr. of the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. Presiding Justice Peterson then practiced at King & Spaulding in Atlanta, where he focused on securities litigation, corporate governance litigation, merger-related litigation, and appellate litigation. Presiding Justice Peterson then moved to the governor's office, where he served as executive counsel and deputy executive counsel counsel to Governor Sonny Perdue. In addition to his role as governor's chief legal advisor, Presiding Justice Peterson also served as a senior advisor on a broad array of policy issues, including water, natural resources, education, the judiciary, and criminal justice. At the expiration of Governor Perdue's term, Presiding Justice Peterson moved to the Attorney General's office as counsel for legal policy, where he oversaw major policy issues in litigation, as well as the rewrite of the state's Open Records and Open Meetings Act. In 2012, the Attorney General appointed Presiding Justice Peterson as Georgia's first Solicitor General. In that position, he oversaw all of the state's civil appellate litigation, played a lead role in all policy-related litigation, and served as a senior advisor to the Attorney General. Presiding Justice Peterson was then appointed Vice Chancellor for Legal Affairs and Secretary to the Board of Regents of the University System of Georgia, a position he held until his appointment to the Court of Appeals. Presiding Justice Peterson has served on numerous government and nonprofit boards and committees, has received a variety of honors and awards, lives with his wife Jennifer and two children in Cobb County, and is an active member of Johnson Ferry Baptist Church. Church. So, Justice Peterson, uh, wow, what what a career you've had already. Thank you for being our guest on the show, and we can't wait to delve into your career and 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 really want to focus on your ju- judicial philosophy, um, which is always fascinating to me. Um, but and but, he can add that he is the first Georgia Supreme Court justice to appear on CUN Court. Because <laughs> I, I, I think you, you are the very first. We've had some court of appeals judges, but we have not had uh, any of your uh, uh, brothers and sisters on the Supreme Court yet. So, welcome. well, I am honored. I'm honored. Oh, yeah. We'll need to tell Kathleen Joyner to put that on your bio on the Supreme Court <laughs> website. That well, we'll see how it goes first. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, presiding justice. Can you tell us a little bit about what your duties are as presiding? We always we always hear of chief justice, but no one ever talks about presiding. What does that mean? Well, it is a complete misnomer because uh, presiding is one of the few things that I don't do. Um, the, <laughs> the chief justice is the one who presides over all of the, the oral arguments. I only sit in for him if he's recused. Um, but it's called that in the Constitution. So that's what we call it. Um, I basically pinch hit for the chief uh, when he's not available. Um, I also play a lot of roles just in administering the the state judicial system. I serve as the vice chair of the judicial council. I head up the judicial council's legislation committee and sort of oversee uh, the judicial branch's legislative efforts uh, each year. Um, And there's just a a host of other stuff like that that goes along. So it's almost entirely administrative work associated with not just the Supreme Court, but also the the state judicial system as a as a whole. 
And honestly, the more senior you become on the court, the more administrative responsibilities you have unrelated to deciding cases. Um, I had no idea before I joined this court how much of that sort of thing you do. And I would say now, even though my caseload has not reduced, (laughs) um, I spend a majority of my time on administrative work not related to deciding cases. I don't think many just walking what I call normal walking around people know that, that a justice on our Supreme Court has to do so much administrative duties and um and and work with I think most legislation. of them wouldn't find it terribly interesting to be honest. But <laughs> <laughs> but but y'all, I mean y'all have both served as president of the state bar. I mean you know all of the administrative work that goes on in regulating the practice of law and all the other sure. important work the state bar does. And the state bar is an arm of the court. And so I spent five years as the court's liaison to the state bar um, and still do a ton of that work in addition to all the other stuff. So, you know, y'all are better situated than most to have a have a sense of what that looks like. Well, you know, I, I was going to ask you and I, you know, and, and it, I totally concur uh, with our presiding host, Robin, that uh, that you have such an impressive resume. And uh, I guess one thing we have in common, both of us have spent a little time in uh, uh, the sort of rough and tumble of politics, uh, I, I, I guess, too, uh, you know, working in the governor's office. I, I, I worked for a senator and a congressman. But has that if you found that that's helped you in with a lot of those administrative responsibilities, for example, you talked about legislation and uh, that's that's something you're sort of not a stranger to if you've been in the political rough and tumble a little bit. Well, I, I, and this isn't in my, in my resume, but I actually started under the Gold Dome as a high school senior. Um, I spent three years at interning for uh, the majority whip in the state Senate. This is back before um, the, the majority party changed parties. Um, and so I've, I've seen how politics works from a variety of different roles. Certainly the time in the governor's office was the most up close and personal, like really learning how the building works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will say, I think, I think that has certainly been very helpful just in terms of understanding how state government really works as a branch of government. I, I mean, that is, that's an important thing to understand. Um, and I'm certainly not the first person you know, or and not the only person now on on the court who has experience over there. The the chief justice had served in the state legislature. Um, justice Bethel served in the state senate. Um, you know, we've had former solicitors general, but but there's I've had I like to say I've I've spent time in all four branches of government uh, when you throw in the university system as well. Um, so uh, it, it it certainly is useful perspective. Um, but I also appreciate the much more limited role of the judiciary. Um, I, I find that that really suits, I think, my temperament and uh, and skill set a little bit better. But you might you must have had some um, political bug or political leanings. You you liked politics to be to say, I want to, I want to work in the governor's office or I want to work in the, you had to have done that. And you were a solicitor general too, which is obviously very political. But um you, you know, Lester, Lester is a politician. Everybody knows that, even though he's not an elected official. Um 
I, I, from time to time, find myself under the gold dome, too. And for various reasons, a lot of times it's for working for the state bar mm-hmm. uh, or Georgia trial lawyers. But um, don't you think that you have to have some affinity for politics to do what you've done? Um, sure. I, I mean, a number of the jobs that I had, I would not have been interested in had I not been interested in politics. I, I will say there was a time that I thought I was interested in in electoral politics mm-hmm. in one of the policymaking branches. Um, and I will say, I, I think extended time working over there tends to either confirm that or cure you of it. And it definitely cured me of it. So... <laughs> You know, Judge Alex Sanders, who was the uh, chief judge of the South Carolina Court of Appeals um, and and later the president of the College of Charleston, he had run for office. And he said the next time that uh, uh, he suggested to his friends that he was going to run for public office, that he wanted them to lock him in the bathroom with hundred dollar bills to flush down the toilet. (laughs) That sounds, uh, sounds about right. That's a good one. But Justice Peterson, you do have to run for office in Georgia, even as a Supreme Court justice. Um, I I wanted to get your thoughts about that. What is that like? And and do you agree with our system of electing our judges? Should judges be elected by by the public? So I I have two things to say about that. I think the first is um, the people have decided that they get to elect their judges. And I think as a judge administering the constitution that they've decided to, to, to adopt, I don't really get to have, in one sense, I don't really get to have a, a view on that. Like I'm, I have sort of a, an oath that requires me to, to obey them. Um, my second thought and, and he, completely inconsistent with what I just said, uh, my view of judicial elections is sort of like Winston Churchill's view of democracy. It's the worst way of, of doing things except for all the others. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't love it and I don't love sort of the way that it, it puts us into the role of, of being viewed like politicians. And I definitely don't love asking people for money, um, particularly when my pitch winds up being something like, hey, look, I swear an oath. To treat everybody exactly the same, whether they get, write a check to me or they max out to an opponent. Um, so if you're going to write to me, it really must must be that you just love America and want good government because uh, you're not getting anything out of it. Um, That's right. But I, I do think it is important for people to have public trust in their judicial system and people having the ability to choose their own judges. Um such as it is, I, I think there's real value in it. And at the end of the day, it is the form that the people decided they wanted to have. And so that's what they get. I want to I want to get you to put your uh, your, you know, a political science scholar, I think, is not uh, not too strong a term. Um, and I want to get you to put your political science hat on for a minute and I kind of make an observation. So I mentioned South Carolina. I went to law school there. I'm a, I'm a Georgia boy, not mm-hmm. a member of the bar, but I've still got a lot of friends over there. And when I went to law school over there, I was aghast that the judges in South Carolina are elected by the legislature. Perhaps yep. not surprising. A lot of them are former legislators. Funny how that works. Uh, but they've, you know, now there's sort of a little uprising over there to change the way that that happens. And you heard some of that if you followed the Murdoch uh, case, you know, a little yep. bit. One of the defense lawyers was, uh, you know, was a legislator. And if you look at places that just have popularly elected judges like 
Alabama, North Carolina. I mean, in North Carolina, uh, I mean, they have partisan judicial races and, you know, the uh, they uh, threw out one party and the other party came in and they reversed an opinion that was about, you know, 24 hours old or something. You know, I'm exaggerating, but uh, but it seems to me that it's fair to say in Georgia that we we've had a pretty calm time, you know, with judicial races. I mean, we had one. I mean, Justice Hunstein had one that was sort of, uh, uh, I'll say, uh, inflammatory and potentially inflammatory. She had an opponent there. But for the most part, uh, you know, we sort of have bipartisan elections instead of partisan elections, it seems like. But I'm wondering what your thoughts are on why, why have we why have we been so, in my view, fortunate about that? So I think there's a couple of reasons. And I think one reason is we have nonpartisan elections. And I think I th- if you're going to have judi- elections for judges, I think they've got to be nonpartisan. Um, I, you know, judges take an oath to be impartial. And when you think about the root of the word impartial, and then you think about the idea of partisan elections, I don't understand how you can can promise to be impartial and simultaneously align yourself with a party. Even if you're just talking about like uh, election cases, right? Republican versus Democrat. I align myself with X party. How can I possibly be viewed as impartial? Now, in those states where they've decided to do that, you know, that, that, that's what that is. And I have a lot of friends who are on you know, Supreme Courts in other states who have to run that way. And that is what that is. But I think it is incredibly important to have nonpartisan elections because I think the message it communicates to the public when you say, hey, we've got judges who align themselves with one party or another, I think, I think undermines some important things about, about the law. I will say we have some local judges who run, you know, who local law provides run on a partisan basis. And I have during a case involving an election dispute in one of those elections asked whether that really is consistent with the code of judicial conduct, um, which I think is an interesting question that I will express no opinion on during this <laughs> conversation. Um, well, I will also know, say and the, and the folks to really thank for that, in my view, are Larry Walker, who and, and uh, Roy Barnes and uh, uh, Speaker Tom Murphy, who in the 83 Constitution, that was I actually worked at the legislature that year in the 83 Constitution, I think was the first one that that that's the we up until 83, 1983, we had partisan judicial elections and they constitutionally changed it. And the, as you say, the public, you know, approved that, decided yeah. that that's the way that they wanted to go for judges in really every court of record. Well, they have my thanks. And I'll say I, I, I worked with Mr. Walker when I was with the Board of Regents. He was serving on the Board of Regents at the time, and he was actually chair of the committee that I principally staffed. So spent a lot of time with him. Um, I, I will also say about the South Carolina model, I litigated in South Carolina when I was in the AG's office. I was representing the state in a lawsuit against South Carolina had sued us and the Army Corps of Engineers over the Savannah Harbor deepening, mm-hmm. trying to keep us from from doing that. And they sued us in South Carolina state court. Um, and I will say, when you have the state of South Carolina filing a lawsuit that benefits the state of South Carolina in front of a judge who was appointed by the legislature, you don't perhaps feel like you're going to get as fair a shake as you might like. 
<laughs> I, I can only imagine that. I actually, I never practiced law in South Carolina, but I happened to clerk there both summers in law school. And, and I've told Lester, it's like another world. Uh, and, and in no way am I, you know, meaning to I know. demean any oh. of the South Carolina judges. So many sure, of them are my of friends. But. Well, I got course, I but. actually one of my best friends from law school is on the South Carolina Supreme Court. His name's John, as is one of your colleagues, who's one of my good friends, John Ellington. And I got them to uh, square off uh, a few <laughs> years ago at a Southeast Aboda meeting about the, the differences in the different places. But, uh, you know, a lot of it's just, you know, people that have grown up under one system one way or another, you don't question it, you know, as yep. much. And, you know, maybe I would, you know, I was down, I was down at the legislature when they changed it. So it, it stuck in my mind for low these many years, you know? Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, I would say, I agree that if you have um, partisan elections for judges, I would think every opinion authored would be questioned by the other party. That, that you would have no nobody would have would believe they would they the the public would think oh well that's because he's a Republican of course he went that way or they the other side would say oh he's a Democrat that, of course he would rule that way so I I think it's better at, at, if you're going to have elections it's got to be nonpartisan as as we do in Georgia and, and I will say even even in in those other states the vast majority of opinions are are unanimous and and I I think I think that's actually not how it plays out. But on those on those few, you know, really controversial cases, I do think that winds up being part of the narrative. And, and that's unfortunate. Let's um, talk a little bit about the fact that um, talking about the public, your um, oral arguments are open to the public. Any member of the public can come right in, sit, sit on a bench in the courtroom, mm -hmm. which, by the way, is one of the most gorgeous courtrooms I've ever had the pleasure of being in um, and your oral arguments are uh, broadcast online live. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I want, I want your opinion about the fact the United States Supreme court won't do that. And what I've, what I've heard as their reasoning is that they think it would encourage lawyers to be theatrical or act out or do something crazy but but your court has been uh, broadcasting your oral arguments for years now. Um, what's your opinion about that? Is it helpful? Do you like that? Do you think it's something good for the public? So I will say as a lawyer, I loved it. Um, and, and that was, I mean, for four years, my office was in the building that the Supreme Court was in. And I could sit in my office on the first floor and watch arguments that were happening five floors up without even having to walk up. And in a state the size of Georgia, I mean, Georgia's the biggest state east of the Mississippi. If if you have an office in Brunswick and there's a case being argued in Atlanta that affects your clients, but you're not actually the one arguing, why on earth should you have to drive five hours, if you're lucky, um, just to sit there for for 40 minutes? I, I think it's I think it's really important for for lawyers and parties who are outside of metro atlanta to be able uh, to access it without leaving their office i also just think the public transparency is really important and not only do we broadcast it live but we then archive it on our website until the case is decided we wind up taking it down after the opinion comes out but it's it's archived up there for months and i i just i really think that's that's important from a public transparency public accountability standpoint 
Um, and I'm a, I'm a huge believer in doing it. And honestly, the court's been doing it. I don't know when the, when we started, but it's been doing it for a long time. I, I think we were one of the first to, to really start doing that. Um, and I will say, I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody acting out because they knew it was being live streamed. Um, you know, I think that's a different question from remote argument. Um, I think when you're doing remote argument, there is something that is lost about the solemnity of being in court. There's something about being in a courtroom in front of people wearing robes that just makes you take it a little more seriously than if you're sitting at your desk in your home office. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm a big believer in making court as accessible and as convenient for lawyers and parties as possible and efficient and and you know, inexpensive. And I think having forcing people to sit in court for five hours, you know, for a calendar call where you're going to just have to stand up after five hours and say ready or not ready. Maybe that, maybe there are some things we can learn from the pandemic and, and become more efficient about. But I think if you're going to argue a case in the, in the highest court of your state, I think doing it in person is important, but I've never found anybody to act out because they knew it was being recorded. If if the calendar call goes the way of the dinosaur as a result of the pandemic, it may have been worth it, you know, in my, in my view. Um, it's the most absurd thing, you know, to have to travel, you know, three hours to 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 tell the most often told of lawyer lies. I'm ready for reach, trial. Yep. You know? so. Ready when reached. Ready as reached. Um Justice Peterson, what do you, do you or any of your colleagues ever go back and re-listen, re-listen to oral arguments? Or, oh, absolutely. Or watch them? You absolutely. Do? Yeah. Um, we, we also, we have a service that automatically creates a transcript out of the argument that just for our own internal use. Um, I, I don't even use that as much. I honestly, when, when we've had argument in a particularly significant or difficult case, I will usually go back and, and re-listen. Because part of the thing is the timing at which we have argument, you know, we have a two-term rule in the, for the appellate courts in Georgia that the Constitution imposes. We have to decide all cases within two terms of court after they dock it, which winds up being six to eight, eight months. But because of that, we're always focused on writing opinions that are in their last term, but we hold argument only in cases that are in their first term. And so we'll get ready for argument, we'll have argument, and then we'll put the case, absent, you know, some emergency or extraordinary circumstance, we'll put the case aside for three months. And so by the time I'm ready to, to really start working on an opinion, I need to go back and refresh my memory if there's something about the argument that was, was particularly significant. I, I want to talk a little bit about your process, but since you brought that up about Sometimes it may be three or four months after oral argument for, before you come back to a case. Um, can you tell us whether after uh, our arguments adjourned, the justices go back into their chamber or antechamber? Do y'all do a okay like a like a jury of twelve people? What do you think? All in favor, raise their hand. Do you do a so, quick so vote? We we do. Uh, we assign every case to a particular justice who will be responsible for authoring the opinion when it dockets. And so that justice is responsible for crafting a memo, kind of summarizing what the case is and what the arguments are, and circulating that to the court before argument. Um, and then after argument, we'll sit in our robing room 
and that justice will make a recommendation to the court, um, and then we'll take a vote. Um, we call it a, a TD vote, a tentative decision vote, um, and the tentative is is very strong, very important. Um, <laughs> but if, if and if if I recommend, you know, I think we should affirm this, and I don't have a majority of votes with me, I then have a couple of choices of what to do. I can say, well. You know, I, I, I can see both sides, and if a majority thinks we should reverse, I'll, I'll go ahead and write it up that way. I can also say, you know, I am really firmly on the affirm side, and I'm pretty sure I just did a lousy job of articulating why. And I am confident that once you read the, the deathless prose that I will write the opinion in, you will, you will come around. We call that writing uphill. And when, when that's what we decide to do, we then kind of impose on ourselves an obligation to get that done quickly so that there's plenty of time for, for the court to write up an opinion going the other way if, if I'm unsuccessful. Or I can say, I'm firmly on the affirm side. I don't think I'm going to be able to convince y'all. I'm going to let this go back on the wheel and I'll write a dissent. And then, and then it'll either one of the folks in the majority can volunteer for it or it'll just be randomly assigned if nobody volunteers. So... One of the things that I have uh, uh, pushed some of our friends on the Court of Appeals about from time to time is the fact that they don't ever meet really to discuss the case. Now, they may stroll down the hallway. Uh, and, and of course, I haven't served on the Court of Appeals, but I'm based on they have an on bank courtroom, Lester. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, based on information and belief. And, and again, I'm popping back to South Carolina when they got a got a court of appeals. They would actually go out after oral argument, sort of like you're talking about and take this tentative vote. And, you know, for an advocate, particularly somebody like me and probably Robin, who are primarily trial advocates, although we we do embarrass ourselves in the appellate courts from time to time. Um, you know, it seems to me that like the idea that you ought to actually meet and discuss what the hell just went on is a really good idea. And so you are sort of uniquely positioned about that because you served on the Court of Appeals. So you've been through their process, which I, I maintain is really one judge that gets another judge to sign, at least one other judge to sign off on it and your process. So can you talk about the difference there a little bit? Well, I, I think there's a big difference between having nine and having three. And when you have to when you have to write an opinion for nine people, there's really no way to do that without talking with them in advance. I think on the Court of Appeals, there is sort of more a cultural sense of you know, the, the assigned judge really does take lead and, and then, you know, the other judges can tell them what they think, you know, when they see something. When I started, there was definitely a culture of not not really convening after argument to discuss, although the panel I was on did from time to time. Um, that was Judge Phipps and, and Judge Dillard, which, man, you want to talk about a great way to learn to be an appellate judge? Sitting on a panel with Judge Phipps and Judge Dillard for a year, that was, mm-hmm. it was great. Um but but I do I do know that that they tend to do that more so these days than than they had used to. Um, so that's good to know. But but writing for nine is a lot harder than writing for three. So. <laughs> yeah. um, Justice Peterson, there was an article recently, I think, in the Daily Report about um, the fact that the Supreme Court of Georgia has been uh, granting fewer certiorari. Uh, request. 
um, and it and I put in some statistics in our outline, but um, it it seems basically to have each year gone down, gone gone down, gone down um, the number of of um, cert petitions. Um, twenty twenty one, it was a nine percent grant rate, um, and I think that's gone down to about four or four point five percent grant rate this year. Um, and that that the court is turning out fewer opinions. For example, it averaged ninety opinions in twenty nineteen uh, per quarter, and now in twenty twenty three, it's averaging fifty seven opinions per quarter. Can you talk a little bit about? Is there any sort of uh, intentional uh, part on the Supreme Court to say we're not going to issue as we're not going to grant as many requests for certiorari? Is it is there any, anything at play like? We've got to accept less or or is it just the way it is? So there's definitely not any sort of intentional thing. It's it's just kind of the the luck of the draw. I, I will say our court historically writes more opinions than any other high court in the state or in the country by a wide margin. Um, and part of that is the nature of our jurisdiction. We have direct appellate jurisdiction over all murder cases. And and virtually no other court does. And certainly, I mean, I think California may may do some of that, but they don't write opinions in those cases. Um, so we, in terms of published opinions, we lead the the nation by a wide margin. Um, I, I will say, um, you know, that this year I think we've seen the the grant rate sit more around fifteen percent. Um, at least through the partial year. And so it really is kind of just luck of the draw. I, I will say the the case count, you know, we only get cases after trial courts are done with them and for certs after the court of appeals are also done with them. And y'all know, you know, I mean, trial lawyers like y'all know better than I do, the effect that the pandemic had on the ability to get final decisions out of trial courts. And most of what we get is appeals from trials. Well, when you go for a while without having trials, you just have fewer fewer appeals. And so I think I think the principal reason for the downturn in our published opinions is just kind of the the lingering effect of of the pandemic and I think we're we're starting to see that uptick as as trial courts are really working through their backlog. I will tell you there's some real there's some real choke points in the ability for that throughput rate to increase. And I think one of the real choke points we're seeing is court reporters, because you can't, you can't, you can't get a record transmitted to our court until you have a transcript that's ready to be transmitted with it. And there's such a shortage of court reporters now and, and trial courts, and this is not criticism. This is precisely what I do. If I was a trial judge, if they have a choice between their court reporter sitting there and working on a transcript so that the case can be sent to us or having the court reporter in the courtroom so they can actually do their business, they're going to have the court reporter in that courtroom. Um, and so we're just anecdotally, we're hearing from a number of, of trial courts. We've got motions for new trial that have been fully decided and they're ready to go, but we don't have a transcript yet. And so we'll just send it to you whenever we get a transcript. Um, well, that just makes perfect sense. You know, I felt like this year, Every case I've filed in the last five years is on a trial calendar. I mean, it's been uh-huh. a, it's been a like um, you know I'm ready to um, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to, you know, jump out the top floor window here sometimes because I'm on so many trial calendars. But that makes perfect sense. There are no, no trials. There's not a lot of appeals that yep. are coming up. And, um, and well, for, I, I'm sorry, for, for the first part of the pandemic, I think a lot of trial judges turned to sort of pending motions for new trial that they could resolve, you know, through Zoom hearings and then just enter an order. And that's then what winds up on our doorstep. But at some point, you've worked through the stuff that was sitting there from pre-pandemic trials, and you know. Yeah, I'll say that I'm I'm with Lester. All, all my cases are on trial calendars, but that's that's what makes them settle. I'll, I'll say that. I know. Nothing, yeah, and, nothing. And, and I'm not saying. I mean, I could probably count on one hand the number of cases I had that got settled during the pandemic. Yeah. Because uh, I mean, of course, I'm I'm uh, uh, Robin and I both mainly represent plaintiffs, but you know, there's, there's just no incentive whatsoever to, you know, for defendants to settle cases. Yeah. Well, and honestly, about- similar thing on the criminal side. I mean, if there's no risk of trial, why on earth are you right. going to plea? Mm-hmm. Right. And I was going to say, nothing motivates a defense attorney, like a, tri- <laughs> a trial date. It's amazing. All of a sudden they start working on your case and they want to settle. So I, yeah, I get that. I understand that. Well, talking a little bit about, Um, You mentioned the court's jurisdiction. The Supreme Court of Georgia recently jettisoned off divorce cases, or I guess I guess we call them domestic. Mm -hmm. What are you domestic cases Um, jettisoned off that um, jurisdiction? So so now the court has jurisdiction over major felonies. um, Just just murder. Just murder. Okay. Murder, constitutional questions, election contests, habeas, and death penalty. Okay, is, and that's original, our direct, original, original jurisdiction. That is original, that is our right. that is our direct appellate jurisdiction that bypasses the court of appeals, and then everything else is certain. And and we'll throw in lawyer discipline cases, which I'm sure are your favorite. And judicial discipline and all that sort of stuff. Yep. Um. Do you care to comment any on what the state of uh, lawyer discipline is? Um, Should there be changes? Does it need work, or is it? Are you happy with it? So, so it's always a little awkward to talk too much about lawyer discipline because you know every pending case is in the pipeline and it's going to come to us, and so you can't really talk about particular yeah. cases. Um, and. And we're honestly usually the last people to get a sense of what patterns other people are seeing. So, you know, if y'all are seeing something that I'm not seeing, I certainly welcome that feedback, whether it's on this or or offline. Um, I I will say, I think the pandemic created a a slowdown in some ways, um, but also some, you know, things, a lot of things were able to be done remotely for those folks who wanted them to be done remotely. Um, mm-hmm. but we yeah, also, I, so I felt like our judicial system, uh, in my opinion, responded very well to the pandemic and kept things going. Of course, I was never going to try a case on zoom. That was my bottom line, yep. but except for a jury trial, everything else moved, moved right along, including appellate arguments. So I, I, I thought the Georgia judicial system did a great job. Uh, well, well, and I'll say we spent we spent an enormous amount of time. Um, Chief Justice Harold Melton uh, yes. kind of convened a group of of the five of us who were most senior 
to kind of work through all of the how are we going to manage through the pandemic stuff, and then convened a task force that was chaired by then Fulton Superior Court Judge Sean Lagrua, um, with stakeholder representation from all over the place. Um, but you know, I will say the disciplinary process. I, I think it works pretty well. Um, the the state bars office, the general counsel, um, is essentially the the prosecutors, and and it's a full time job for them. But apart from them, everybody else in the in the process before it comes to us is basically a volunteer. I mean, the amount of of real public service that prominent, really busy Georgia lawyers do through the disciplinary process, whether on the state disciplinary board, the review board, or as a special master, there's an unbelievable amount of time by people who the special masters get paid like a tiny amount. And other than that, it's really just volunteer work for everybody. And we are the, – the public is so benefited by that that high service and calling that the so, Georgia lawyers who are doing those jobs do. So when I was bar president, and I, this came up, I've discussed it with – well, I, I, I think Robin and I are, are – are so long in the tooth here that I'm not even sure there's anybody left on the Supreme Court that was uh, there when we were when we were bar presidents. My, but, Mike Boggs and I are the two longest serving justices. We came on the same day in January of 17. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So. Wow. So what I'm about, I'm, 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 I feel like I'm about to box the witness in on cross examination here, but it's not really you, Justice. This is what's been going on for a long time. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate everything you said and how much I believe it's true about the lawyer disciplinary system. It runs on it runs on volunteers, you know, for the most part, and particularly these special masters. And so for a long time, uh, you know, the court, the, the predecessor, your predecessors on the court uh, would, uh, you know, we were looking for special masters and the court would say, why can't y'all get more special masters? And I'd go talk to lawyers and here's the answer I got. So I'm going to let you I'm going to let you tell me what I should have told them. But they say you know, it's a prominent lawyer out there that maybe doesn't do bar discipline cases, you know, doesn't have a conflict, whatever. And they say, look, I'm going to take that case and I'm going to listen to it and I'm going to give it my best shot. And then it's going to go up to the Supreme Court with my name on it. And we're going to get one of these opinions that tells what a lousy job I did as a special master. And the author of that opinion in the Supreme Court won't even put their name on it. They mm -hmm. put it out as a per curiam opinion. Why would I sign up for that? Now, that's 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 what I that's what I heard. And, you know, uh -huh. and I conveyed that because it felt like I felt like uh, that's, you know, that's one of the things I love about you being on here and about our court. We can sit down and talk about things. Sure. You know? And so but that's that's the the rap from I, th I will say prominent lawyers about serving as special masters? Well, um, you know, point one, I would say is there are a lot of special masters who do a great job and uh, they, they work hard and they take it seriously um, to their own financial detriment. Um, and if you work hard and you do a good job, generally speaking, uh, you'll have worked hard and done a good job and, and you get affirmed. Um, every now and then we see things differently and we try to be nice about it. Um, and every time, every now and then, we see something really go off the rails, and and we also have an obligation to call that out too. And uh, but I think it is very important for for the members of our court to understand what goes into the process, and and who is doing what, 
and the service that is involved. And we've spent a lot of time, a lot of time over the last couple of years really talking with those groups of folks and, and we've had the, the Office of General Counsel and to, to kind of brief the whole court on here's the process and here's how it works and here's who does what. Um, and, you know, we, we don't always agree about everything, but it, it is really important. Let, let me also just as we're giving shout outs, let me give a shout out to Maddox Kilgore from from Marietta. He serves as the coordinating special master and the amount of just nonsense that he has to deal with that doesn't really squarely fit anywhere else. Um, he does a great job. Um, you know, the, the Office of General Counsel does a great job, but Maddox does a great job. And it's it's not his day job. Um, and yeah. so I, I yeah, he has a real job on top of that. He, he I would have been remiss if I didn't single that out. <laughs> I had a case that I got basically hired in to try. And they had other lawyers that were negotiating and everything. And this case was the longest running case ever. And Maddox stepped in and he got it. We got it resolved, you know, when he stepped in. So you're you're absolutely there. But what? tell me about the I'm going to press a little more here. What about the per curiam opinion? You know, for every for everybody else that's getting justice one way or another, you know, somebody's signing off on that opinion for the most part. But right. all those others. Seems like, well, no, no justice really wants to put their name on it, even though the special master did. So so what I will say is I have never participated in a discussion at the court about why we do that. It's been just the way that it worked. The number of things that happen in the court system because that's the way that it's always worked. Mm-hmm. Y'all know this. There's a long, long list of those things. And it's doubly the case on a Supreme Court. Um, and that has just been the tradition since long before I got there. Um, and, and honestly, I've, I've never really thought about it a whole lot. Um, cause and, the fact of the matter I, is, I want to be clear. I'm not blaming you for that, but that, I sure. think it was a time in my and Robin's career that they, that they were signed opinions. I mean, I think that's been as recently and, and. And, uh, and and again, Rob and I are a little more long in the tooth than you are uh, the, here. But uh, uh, the, the, at some point, they did start doing that. And it was long before you were there. So I'm not trying to hem you. So, so I have no idea. What I will say is I have written probably a couple of concurrences or dissents in disciplinary cases. And I've certainly signed the heck out of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, I think focusing on who who authors the opinion is a little bit of a mis a misunderstanding of how our process works. If I join an opinion, whether or not somebody else wrote it, it's because I agree with what's in that opinion. And if somebody's concerned about what's in an opinion and it's an opinion I joined, then they can be concerned about me whether I authored it or not. Because when I join an opinion, I'm signing up for everything that's in it. And and if you didn't, if there were part of it that you didn't agree with, you would probably write a special concurrence yes. or something to point that out. Yes. Yeah. I'll say that Lester and I both, when we were presidents of the state bar, we both had to serve on the um, investigative panel and the, yep. the appellate review uh, of disciplinary decisions. And and. That was an eye opener for me. I, I can and and I can remember at the investigative panel meetings after a whole day of working on all these cases all day, I'd rush back to my office to check my files. Oh, my God. Did I do that? <laughs> you know? oh, oh, look, the first six months on the court, 
I did, like I had the highest level of anxiety about, oh my gosh, have I, have I done any of these things? Cause, cause you don't, I mean, I don't know anybody who just sits there and reads every disciplinary case that comes out for fun. Right. Right. Um, but, but I will say, I think that, I think the general counsel's office does, does a good job too of, of identifying which cases, you know, where was there something that happened that, it, you know, really just negligence and nobody really got hurt and there's a way to, to better educate the lawyer and maybe offer some, some private discipline that, yeah. that protects the public, but doesn't make a big deal out of something that's a technical violation, but didn't hurt anybody versus the guy who's just serially abandoning his clients. And you see that right. too. Right. Yeah. And I will say it is the most heartbreaking, like immigration cases where the ability of somebody to remain in this country legally is lost because a lawyer just abandons their client. I mean, that's so sad. Yeah. Do, do you have any thoughts that you want to share? I'm not, I, I certainly, you know, I know I realize that I, I want you to feel free to just decline. Oh, believe me, uh, I do. <laughs> but there is, uh, and, and there's a recent opinion that you all released about this, but there's, there, there, there's always been some, uh, uh, sort of a, uh, jurisdictional confluence between lawyers and judges. And, you know, I, I got the triple crown. I was on JQC. I was on the investigative panel. I was on the review panel. Um, and so it used to be, you know, when I was chair of an investigative panel, we'd get complaints sometimes about part-time judges, whatever. And we're like, we can't handle that. That goes to the JQC. And frankly, when I was on the JQC, when we got a complaint about something a judge did as a lawyer, we're like, that's the bar. Uh, and now it seems like that some of those entities have pushed the envelope a little bit and there's a little more of a more fluid border, I'll say, than I ever imagined, you know, there. I think that's probably something that it is better for me to just leave to to, to y'all for right now. Okay. Justice Peterson, let's talk about your process as a Supreme Court justice. Um, can you just kind of walk us through for, for folks like us who have no idea how it happens um, over there in that beautiful Supreme Court? You get a case in. What what happens? How do, what's your process? So so my staff can sit in and the staff of, of each of the other justices consists of two permanent staff attorneys and then one what we call term clerk, basically like the, the federal model, a, a younger recent grad who comes in and serves for a year and then, and then leaves. So three lawyers. Um, when a case gets docketed, it gets automatically assigned randomly to a particular justice. We're then responsible for the first thing that we will do once, you know, we've run conflicts and, and all of that. Um, we write up a memo about the case to the court. If it is, if it's a case that's going to be orally argued, we call it a bench brief. If it's a case that's not going to be orally argued, we call it a submit brief. But in either case, it lays out the facts in an objective way based on our full review of the record. And then it just summarizes the arguments of the parties um, without, without sort of um, just summarizes it in their own words with, with their own sort of framing. Um, and then some of us will provide analysis to let the courts understand kind of what we're thinking about. And some of us, some of us don't. 
We then, then it will come to the, the time for a TD vote, which I had talked about before. If it's orally argued, that time is immediately after argument in the roving room, um, after argument. If it's not orally argued, it comes during what we meet every two weeks as a full court in what we call a bank meeting. It's usually on Thursdays at 930, and it'll go for about four hours, um, and we'll just vote on a bunch of cases. That's when we vote out opinions and, and cert petitions and everything else. We'll have those submit briefs on there to take those tentative votes about how to decide a case. Once I get that TD vote, now I honestly, if I have enough time, and I'm far enough ahead on my caseload, I'll start to write up the case consistent with how I think I'm going to recommend before I get that TD, just to see if it writes. Because there are some cases where I think I know how this is going to go, but until I really try to write it up, I'm not going to be certain that it works. Um, and so I try to do that before the TD vote. Um, but if not, then definitely after, I'll, I'll start working on the opinion. I'll, I'll direct my staff attorney or my term clerk Here's how I want it to go. Here's how we're going to resolve all these issues. And then they'll take a cut at writing it. They'll then bring it to me and I'll edit it and they'll go back and make the changes and bring it back and I'll edit it again. And once it's in a place where I'm comfortable, then we'll go through the spading process where they go through and they check every quote against the record. They check every case site. They make sure that everything we're saying about cases and the facts line up with the case law and, and the record. And then I'll do another full edit uh, at that point. And in the simplest case, that's when we'll circulate a draft to everybody else. In the more complicated cases, we'll go through, you know, five to 10 more editing iterations. And then everybody else will come in and explain to me where I've gotten everything wrong and how we need to handle this stuff differently and we rewrite stuff. I mean, everything is a nine-person group project. Do, do sometimes they just knock on your door and say, may I talk to you about this case? Or Oh, Absolutely. And do y'all get in fights in the bank room? Is that where you need security and you get in fisticuffs and duke it you know, out? We, we, we have a terrific group of folks right now, and we all really get along. Um, and we all really have a high level of respect for each other. Now, we still vigorously disagree on occasion. Um, and a lot of times that disagreement is not clear after the fact because we work through the disagreements and we we find another way to resolve the case that everybody can sign off on, usually that's narrower. Um, but, but something like 96% of our opinions go out unanimously. Um, and, I, and I think until, re, until the last several weeks, we had not had a dissent this year. Um, so we, we, we do a really, we work really hard to try and achieve consensus. Um, and, and we do it most, almost always. Um, but there is a lot of, there's a lot of disagreement and there's a lot of disagreement because we, we have different perspectives. There's a lot of disagreement because somebody has thought of something that somebody else hadn't. And, and that's usually disagreement that resolves pretty quickly. Um, but that's a good thing. I mean, that, that's, that's the benefit of a multi-member court, right? I as much agree. as I, I mean, you know, as, as much as, as I might on some days, think that a court of nine Nelses would be, you know, just great. That would also be awful. Um, and, and I would probably fight with myself more than I care to think. Um, but also, I mean, I have blind spots. I have stuff that, that, you know, either I don't have experience with and I don't really understand well, or stuff where just the way that I think about something needs some pushing and some refinement in order to get it right. 
And we've got nine people from with very different backgrounds and very different perspectives and very different experiences. And, and our work product winds up being the result of the combination of all of that. And I think that's unbelievably valuable. You know, that's that's something that and, and we talked a little bit about the disciplinary process. And, you know, one of the things I've seen in representing lawyers and judges a lot who get in trouble are ones who are sort of isolated. They don't have a law partner and they don't know a lot of, you know, like Robin and I are both small practitioners. We'll pick up the phone and ask one another about stuff. And I think that's true about the quality of their practice, too. You know, when you have somebody that you can bounce something off of, it's just a it's just a better product. And uh, and, and and you 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 really benefit from having somebody say, "I really think you're wrong about this," you know, yes. and this is why. And I will say, you know, when you join a court like this, where no matter what you write, you're going to get a bunch of red ink, you really have to get over yourself pretty quickly. You can't get too invested in anything that you've written, and you have to learn to engage with criticism in a in a gracious way and everybody on the court does i mean and these are all really accomplished people who are really good at what they do and are really smart and are not used to being wrong and they <laughs> and they usually aren't okay but but there's nobody on the court that i can't walk into their office and say hey i think you're missing something here here's here's something you may want to think about. And there's nobody on the court that can't walk into my office and say that to me. Um, and, then, and then they don't get defensive when somebody comes in and says, let me just point something out. No, no. Now, you know, do I have better and worse days? Yes. Um, but but I, at the same time, I also recognize when I go in for that bank meeting, we've got, you know, 80 cases on that agenda that we're going to work through. We can have a knock, knock out, drag down, knock down, drag out fight over one of the cases, but I got 79 more I got to work through too. Um, you know, you just, it, none of it's personal. None of it's personal. It's all business and it's not even business. It's we've all taken the same oath and we're all motivated first and foremost by a desire to get it right. Um, and the problem is if we get it wrong, we can really mess some stuff up. And so it's really important that we get it right. Yes, there are real live people depending on you. You're getting it right. Yes, for sure. Let me ask you a question about oral argument, because you're kind of known in the legal world uh, as being uh, a great a great hypothetical uh, asker. You ask a lot of very interesting well thought out hypotheticals. And and I'll tell you when um, Justice, former Justice David Namius retired from the bench, I was asked for a comment from the paper. And I, I said, well, I, I called him the Socrates of the of the Supreme Court bench. And then former Justice Keith Blackwell emailed me or texted me and said, does that make Justice Peterson Aristotle? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love that. Um, so on, you know, in, in the line of Greek, uh, philosophers, where, where do you fall? Uh, in the line of Greek philosophers, you're kind of known more, for great. I'm probably more Homer Simpson. Um, <laughs> you're known for great hypotheticals. Well, so, so I don't know that I would think of myself as, as a, a 
great hypothetical. Uh, the reason we do hypotheticals, and, and there's a lot of cases where it's just not, not a thing, but when we're being asked to articulate a rule, here is the rule that applies here. And we're trying, whether it's we're trying to synthesize case law or frankly, it's a novel question. We want to we want to decide the case before us correctly, but we also want to articulate a rule that doesn't break stuff in other cases. And the parties in this in the case before us, all they care about, generally speaking, is winning, is doing the best they can for their client. And while I care about getting their case right, I also care about what the rule that we articulate, what that does in other cases. And so the reason we ask hypotheticals is to try and figure out, okay, how, do, how, how is this going to apply when we have different facts? And the most common response you'll get, particularly from people who, who haven't done a whole lot of appellate advocacy is, well, judge, that's not this case. To which my response is almost always, counsel, I know that's not this case. That's why I asked about other facts. I'm trying to figure out about how your argument will apply outside of this case. Um, so. So um, amongst the uh, the the storied Greeks, uh, I, 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 I want to be more uh, Ciceroian. And, uh, <laughs> you, you know, the trial lawyers, you know, we think we can persuade people. And, uh, and of course, I'm sure trial lawyers come down there to, you know, Robin and I have argued a lot of appellate cases, even though we mainly do trial work. And I'm, I'm sure it shows when you compare us to people who do that all the time. But I'm curious, do you ever find yourself persuaded by advocacy? And by that, I mean, as opposed to just, you know, the issue, some light, I mean, obviously the issues are at the heart of it. But, uh, you know, I feel like, and I'll just tell you, I think one of the, and I think it may prove to be the the death of the U.S. Supreme Court as we know it, because at one time they had days of oral argument where they discussed that and had the kind of discussion I suspect you all have in these uh, TD vote type things. And now uh, you seem to know where uh, virtually every justice except one on the U.S. Supreme Court and sometimes not even that one may line up. So, you know, you're sort of uh, casting pearls before swine there if you're thinking you're going to, you know, you're going to convince somebody. And I've not always I don't feel that way about the state appellate courts, you know, at least that I've appeared in. But have, have you been swayed by advocacy? Sure. Um, you know, would you like so, to elaborate on that? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think, I think a useful way to think about it is, is our difference in process from the 11th circuit. So when I clerked on the 11th circuit, leading up to oral argument, we would spend a couple months preparing and the, the law clerk would write a memo for the judge you know, in great detail, going through all the legal arguments, doing all their own original research and basically saying, here's the way we think the case should come out. And so I don't know that I ever really saw an oral argument change the outcome because of the amount of of research that had already been done. I mean, if the law is X, you can be the greatest advocate in the world, but it doesn't really matter. We, on the other hand, don't have that amount of lead time to focus on cases because remember the two-term rule, we're, we're under the gun to get all of these opinions out that are this-term opinions 
and the oral argument is in a case that's for next term. And so the amount of prep time that I will do for cases that are not assigned to me, you know, I'll probably spend two or three days, which is very different from two months. Now, I'll have read all the cases and I'll have read the briefs and I'll, I'll understand the, the, the arguments and I'll have read the key parts of the record. Um, but I will not have spent the amount of really quality time thinking through all of the permutations of a potential, you know, resolution to the case in the, in the normal case. And so there's stuff that can happen during an oral argument that can really change my thinking about a case. Um, and, and, and that happens, you know, at least once a month, I would say. Wow. Um, now sometimes that happens because an advocate stands up and concedes a point that they shouldn't have conceded. Um, now I will say one of the things I most respect about a real professional advocate is when they concede a point they should concede. Um, you know, don't stand up there and waste my time arguing a bunch of things that you know the record does not support and the case law does not support. That's just a waste of everybody's time. But 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 there there are some very good advocates that have done a really good job of explaining, particularly in cases where Maybe it's a case involving an issue about an industry that we don't really understand that well. And sort of a, a judge, here's how this is going to apply in the real world. Here's what this means in this big space that you just don't have a lot of insight into. That, that kind of thing, that can be enormously helpful. Um, so, yeah, there, there are very few cases where we go in. I mean... There are a lot of cases, especially criminal cases, where the law is pretty cut and dried and, and you have a pretty good sense going in who's going to win. But there's very few cert cases, for example, where I go in knowing for certain how I'm going to rule. I, th I think when you mention if it's a, a large industry and you don't know how how it works because you've never been in that plant or that space before, that does it help put it in context for you that this ruling may affect all of this industry. So so you, it can. You consider I, context, I guess, is what I'm asking. So I think context is certainly important. I mean, if the law is X, then the law is X. And, and you know, that is what that is. I think it's more, a, a, it, it more goes to an issue of how broadly do you write something? And we have to decide the question that's before us, but we don't want to accidentally break something by writing it in a way that appears to decide more than we have to. And if you don't understand the context in which you write, you're writing, it can be harder to calibrate that right. Sure. Okay. Yeah, a, I mean, you know, just listening to you talk about it, the amount of time you have to spend thinking about unintended consequences is, uh, is I mean, it's, it's, I hadn't thought of that as much. I mean, obviously, I, I probably think about it more than people who don't practice law, but I, I really hadn't thought about it that much. Well, and particularly, I mean, when when we're doing state constitutional work, if we mess that up or we get it wrong, the only way to fix it other than a later case where we reverse ourselves is a constitutional amendment. I mean, that's that's kind of a big deal. And so pretty hard. We we try really hard to get stuff right and to get stuff. You know, appropriately narrow. Justice Peterson. Um, Sometimes judges and justices are 
are labeled with a particular judicial philosophy, so-and-so is known as a, a, a strict constructionist, so-and-so is known as an originalist. I don't even know what all the terms are, but um, do you have a particular judicial philosophy that if somebody had to label you, they would say, Justice Peterson is a this? I think most labels are probably both over and under inclusive simultaneously. Um, but but I think it is fair to say that my understanding of the way to interpret legal text is that the meaning of legal text is fixed at the time that it's adopted and that it's understood according to the text and according to the meaning that text had at the time it was adopted. It doesn't change over time absent intervention by sort of the drafting authority, um, the legislature, if it's a statute, the, the agency, if it's a regulation, et cetera. Um, whether that fits best in sort of the school of originalism or textualism, I think there's a lot of overlap between textualism and originalism. Um, you know, I hate the term strict constructionist because I, I don't think you ought to be strict. I think you ought to be fair and accurate. Um, but that that would be probably the way I would articulate my approach what to if, interpreting legal text. In in what about in the situation where you're interpreting a statute um, and you say what it was meant, what was meant by the words they used at the time it was enacted, but then we have modern science that advances. Uh, we have uh, obviously it's a different world than than. It was when many of our statutes were were written and, and enacted, like now everyone has an iPhone with all of their information on it, or we're on Zoom. It, 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 none of these things were anticipated, I think, when a lot of statutes were written. And so what, what do you do when you say, well, it's got to be what was intended when it was written, but none of these things existed? So, so I, so there, there are different schools of originalism and one school of originalism is original intent originalism. And, and I think that's a harder question for, for those folks to answer. I, I'm more of an original meaning originalist, which is we focus on what the words meant at the time they were adopted. Um, and, and usually that meaning applies a principle. And then we figure out how that principle applies to different facts and a different situation and a different technology. Now, sometimes the nature of the principle that's articulated in a statute simply just doesn't have an intelligible application in, in later developments. The legislature meets every year and they can go in and they can change that. Um, and legislation tends to be more narrower and more precise and, and more kind of tailored the Constitution, on the other hand, tends to have broader principles that that more easily can be applied to later changed circumstances. Um, but even there, I mean, we have constitutional amendments every two years on the ballot. It is much easier to amend the Georgia Constitution than it is the the federal Constitution. Um, so, you know, if if legal text articulates a principle, the question is not. What did the original authors of that text think it was going think it was going to apply in a certain way? It's what is the intelligible principle that those words sort of provide, and then how do I apply that to later change circumstances? When, do you think? I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
Well, I, wa- I wanted to follow up on that because um, um, when when you um, are saying that the legislature, it's it's whatever the legislature says, they enact our laws. They and I I think I've Googled once how many or did it on Westlaw, how many of your your court's cases use the terms. It it says what it means and means what it says for a statute. Um, do, when you defer to the legislature and their words and their meaning in a situation, do you ever feel like the court gives up, relinquishes too much of its power, voluntarily gives up power by saying, well, it's whatever the legislature says? It seems no. to me like our court defers to the legislature constantly. Um, no, because because we weren't given any legislative power to begin with. The Constitution vests only the judicial power in the courts, and the judicial power is the power to decide cases and to say what the law means, not what it should mean. Um, and and there are times that that yields weird results. Um, you know, I authored a, a case. Um, couple of years ago now called Alston and Bird about the apportionment statute that y'all may be familiar with. Yes, um, we're very familiar with that. <laughs> yeah. And the apportionment statute basically said in, in, in one category of cases, you apportion things in another category of cases, you don't apportion things. And it didn't make any sense from a policy standpoint, but it was pretty it's clearly what the word said. More than one defendant. More than one in cases involving more than one defendant. Yeah. And and the argument was, well, but it doesn't make any sense to do that. And I wrote an opinion saying, well, that's probably right, but it's what they did. And if they want to do something different, then dang it, they got to go and do it. And they went and they did. changed it the next year. Um, I think they changed it to one or more. Yes. <laughs> but, but I mean, as a, as a judge, when I am called upon to apply to to interpret the law all i know how to do is to read the words and to say what the words mean and there are a lot of times that they mean something that i wish they didn't but i don't get to to exercise essentially the legislative power by applying words that aren't there do you like being a judge depends on the day <laughs> <laughs> no i i i do I do. Um, there are times that it's frustrating because, you know, look, I, I used to be a lawyer and I used to be able to go and fix stuff. And when I see a problem, I like to fix the problem. And in my previous jobs, I could reach out and grab a problem and fix it. And now all I can do is decide stuff that comes to me. And in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a weirdly passive thing. Um, but it's a role that matters a heck of a lot. It has to be done right. Um, and I and I really enjoy doing it most of the time. <laughs> is, I think, it, I think any... it's funny. I was thinking about, uh, you know, like as a, as a lawyer, uh, you, you know, you you know, I've always likened us to the police. You know, nobody really likes to see you coming until they need you, you know, <laughs> you know for something, uh, you know. But the judge, you know, the joke about the judge is everybody goes to the judge's dog's funeral, but nobody goes to the judge's funeral because he can't can't help them. You know, he or she can't help them anymore. And uh, it's sort of a it seems to me it would it would be a well, it's it's certainly a reversal. I would never I wouldn't want to go through. I like being a lawyer, but it's uh, it's 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 almost a 180 degree reversal from what you've been doing before. 
it is. It is. Um, but I'm enough of a nerd that I like the the reading and the writing part, and I'm enough of a lawyer that I really care about it being done right. So, is there Justice Peterson? You talk about you you and all the other justices took the same oath to 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 follow the law, get the right result under our law. Is there any case that keeps you up at night or worries you that you think, man, we follow the law, but I I just don't like the way that came out, but it, but it was the way it had to come out. Anything that really troubles you or you have you still upset about? So there are probably things that I, I have gotten wrong and, and those I'm upset because I got them wrong, <laughs> not because, you know, I think I got the right outcome. The, the one case that, that troubles me the most often where I am firmly convinced I got it right, but the outcome, I am firmly convinced it was the right answer and I don't like the outcome, it was a case on the Court of Appeals and it was a just this horrible rape case. Guy raped his stepdaughter over and over and over again for a period of years and was only discovered when she got pregnant. And his only defense at trial was we were in love, which is not a defense. Um, but they closed the courtroom for the victim's testimony, and the judge did not make the findings that the U.S. Supreme Court has made crystal clear you have to have before you can close a courtroom mm-hmm. over objection. For, for an open public court. Yes. Um, and 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 the Supreme Court has said that is structural error. You don't do you don't do harmless error assessment for that. And so we had to vacate a ten year old conviction and send it back for a retrial at which that victim would have to testify again. Mm. Um, in a case where there was no question that that the guy did it, and mm-hmm. and it just it was it was brutal. But it is what the law requires. And the fact of the matter is the protections that the Constitution afford, it affords to everybody. And the government doesn't get to decide, we're, we're going to waive that protection for this person because we're sufficiently confident that they did the bad thing. The, the Constitution applies to everybody, period, full stop. Uh, if it's okay, if it's okay to railroad a bad man into prison, it's okay to railroad a good man into prison. As my friend Bobby Lee Cook used to say, 100 percent agree. Well, I mean, I think that you just really summed up the rule of law in America um, and and what lawyers stand for, what judges stand for. I I think it's helpful for the public to understand that, that we're going to do what's required by our law. And that's exactly what you did. Um, So interesting story. Um, just a couple more questions, Justice Peterson, then we'll let you go. One one thing I just wanted to ask, because I know you're a member of the, the church, um, does your faith play a role in, in your job? So, so I think my faith plays a role in what I do in, in several different ways. Um, what it doesn't do is it doesn't affect the outcome of any cases, because at the end of the day, I take an oath to apply the law as it exists and what faith you're of or no faith at all doesn't have any effect on what the law means. Um, 
but but this is something I've I've spent a fair bit of time thinking about, and I I talk with with other Christian lawyers and law students from time to time about about at least how I think about that. Um, and I'll say this is this is informed in in part by the judge that I clerked for. He wrote a law review article um, about kind of his view of of how his his faith and kind of informed his work. Um, and so four of these five points I kind of cribbed from him, and, and I added my fifth one. That the first is. An oath is a promise to God. It's not just a solemn promise in a governmental setting. It is a promise I am also make. I understand myself to be making to God. And so it puts even more weight on the duty. My duty to comply with the oath is not merely a moral and legal duty. It is also a religious duty. Um. The second is, you know, my understanding of of my faith is that is that we're all called to obey the law. We're all called um, to to obey the law, and um, that is that as judges we're called to obey the law too. That's that's one of the first rules in the code of judicial conduct, and so that kind of just reinforces an obligation that I already have. Number three, I would say, is an obligation to work hard uh, and a, a, a strong work ethic. Uh, giving the taxpayers a full day's work for a full day's pay um, is is not merely a moral and legal obligation. It is also a religious obligation. And then finally, it's a responsibility to be honest, to to work honestly, to to tell the truth about what I do. Um, and, and so those are those are four points that the judge Pryor had always made, and they they really resonated with me. There's there's a fifth point, and I don't want to mean to suggest he he doesn't hold this either, but it wasn't in his article that that has always been important to me, and that is in in my faith, we understand that every person is made in the image of God. And the theological term for that is the the Imago Dei. My wife always makes fun of me when I start trying to talk Latin, I always mispronounce it. <laughs> but but it's basically the idea that every person has inherent worth and dignity. And has a right to be treated with that inherent worth and dignity, no matter what they've done, no matter what they come from, no matter who they are. And, and that, you know, the law imposes that to some extent. You know, it's, it's, it's the principle of, of the Declaration of Independence. All people are created equal. It's the Equal Protection Clause. But, but, but my, my Christian faith also teaches me those, those people Every single person bears that image of God on them in a meaningful way, which means when I treat them in a certain way, I'm, I'm reflecting what I think about God. And so it just enhances my obligation to treat everyone I come into contact with, with inherent dignity and respect. Um, I don't do it as consistently as I should, but it is absolutely a goal that I understand my faith to impose on me. That's a that's great. That's a great uh, analogy. I, I, I uh, you know, the I've heard many pastors say, you know, I'll stand on level ground before the cross, and you will hear, uh, you know, Atticus Finch is the courts of the great levelers. So it's it's really sort of the same idea, and it's in other faiths as well, not just absolutely, the, not just the Christian faith. Absolutely. Uh, I love that. I love the way you sum that up, and it shows how important that is to you. And we, we've had many other judges tell us that very similar things, whatever their religion is, mm-hmm. uh, how how important it is. Um, Justice Peterson, we want to wrap up as we do with every guest uh, to ask you, 
How do you define justice? So I have a couple of answers to that. Answer one is just sort of how I define justice generally. And then answer two is how does that answer affect my view of what I do? So answer one is I think justice is fairness. I think justice is everybody being heard. I think justice is treating people who are similarly situated in similar ways. And I think justice is making right things that have gone wrong. I think justice is all of those things. But in the justice system, different people have different responsibilities and different authority. Trial judges have an immense amount of authority to do justice the way they see it. They have an immense amount of discretion. That's incredibly important, and it really matters having great trial judges, and we have a ton of great trial judges in this state. The role of an appellate judge, though, is different. The role of an appellate judge is not to reach out and substitute my own judgment for what justice is in a case where all I see is a cold transcript and some briefs. And so I think that an appellate judge best serves that understanding of justice when the appellate judge stays in their lane and just determines whether what the trial judge did was legally permissible. If the trial judge was acting within the trial judge's authority, I don't think I get to substitute my own judgment for a just outcome for theirs. And that may often leave me feeling unsatisfied. And if at some point that feeling of dissatisfaction grows strong enough, then I have an obligation to ask the governor if he's got an open trial judge appointment to give me and, and give up the, the role that I've, that I've promised to, to fulfill on the appellate court. You need to come back and uh, practice law with me and Robin. That's uh, that's uh, that's the answer there. Then you can you can fight for it every day. Uh, I think that's a wonderful definition of justice. I love to hear your your thoughts about it and and that plus your your how faith informs your your job. Um, I think it helps us to know that y- you understand there's a real life person behind every. Case name. Absolutely. That's, that's, you know, that's the main thing for us is that you understand that. Um, and and it, it definitely helps us with our clients. But I love your definition of justice. Um, a great episode. This is, this is going to be one, one, of our, one of our best ones here, Justice. Oh, uh, we need to do a part two, Justice Peterson. <laughs> Anytime. I'll, I'll come and talk to you about sovereign immunity Peterson. and state constitutional <laughs> interpretation <laughs> no. and just nerd out on all the legal stuff. Oh, my goodness. Well, we um, appreciate you and appreciate your ability and willingness to respond. To, you know, well, we think they're hard questions. You may not. But, you know, we've 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 tried to ask you about a lot of different things and, and just really appreciate your answers and your service on the court. Well, I've, I've really enjoyed this. I really appreciate y'all. Um, I've enjoyed listening to previous episodes of, of your show. Um, And I just, I really appreciate being asked. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. All right, friends, this is the time when Lester and I like to share with you uh, one news item or event uh, that has occurred recently in the legal world and that we find particularly interesting and we think you might be interested in it. Lester, do you have uh, a news article? 
I do have a news article, but it's not so much the news article that I'm using it for, except for something that it brought to my attention that I thought was unusual and worth uh, sort of consideration uh, by our uh, listening audience. You may know that the actor Kevin Spacey uh, has uh, been on trial in the United Kingdom over a sex abuse case uh, that was uh, uh, some years ago. And the uh, article, you can you can look at a lot of articles. I'm looking at one uh, which is in The Guardian uh, where Kevin Spacey, during his testimony, says, I lost everything over sex abuse claims. I want to emphasize I'm not trying to say he's guilty or not guilty in any of this. But as I read this article, I found out that uh, he was uh, a manager of a theater in London or produ- a producer to theater of London in like 2001, and that much of this happened well over 10 years ago. And that these uh, victims have come forward and, and made these allegations, and that's what the trial was about. And it shocked me when I read it because uh, I thought in the United States, you know, unless these victims were minors, and I don't believe that they were, this would be barred by the statute of limitations. And so I inquired with uh, some of my friends who have British credentials, and I found out that any indictable offense in the United Kingdom does not have a statute of limitation. And it really sort of just blows my mind, you know, a little bit because we don't have a statute limitation just for our readers who are not lawyers or maybe not criminal practitioners. We don't have a statute of limitation on murder, but for everything else, we have a statute of limitation. And so they are trying this case. uh, And again, I want to say I'm not I'm not saying he's guilty or not guilty. Uh, but the allegations go back to the, the mid 2000s and uh, it is uh, it, it is it's it's just fascinating to me that they do not have a statute of limitations and that there are people who can come forward and make allegations and a person can be indicted for crimes in the United Kingdom because we think of their judicial system as being very similar to ours in so many respects. Um, and, and, and then you're hauled into court for that. So it's an interesting case to watch. And, uh, uh, they do not have, uh, televised trials there like we do. So we won't get the, uh, Johnny Depp, Amber Heard, uh, uh, type observation for that. But I just thought it was fascinating and it was worth mentioning to our readers. And think about if you're the criminal defendant, all the evidence you may have lost to be able to prove you, you didn't do it. You're innocent. Well, Right. Who can go well, back? To I think it would violate them. the speedy trial, the constitutional. You know, yeah. criminal defense lawyers talk about this in Georgia. There's a statutory speedy trial statute. There's a statute in the federal system, too. But then there's the what they call the constitutional speedy. And, you know, to require somebody to go back and pull up evidence from that far that long ago would undoubtedly be difficult to do. You know, uh, so it's, it's just yeah. a, it's fascinating to me. It, it really is. Um, my uh, interesting th- news article, it, it takes place in Canada. So you had one in England and I've got Canada, our, our brethren in Canada. Um, and the the title of the article is Canadian Court Rules, a thumbs up and has a picture of a thumbs up emoji as a contract agreement. And here in this case, 
a farmer in Saskatchewan had agreed to sell 87 metric tons of flax to a grain buyer, and the buyer uh, signed the contract and texted a photo of it to the farmer, and then that farmer responded with a text of a thumbs up emoji. No, no words, but just thumbs up. And the question is, is that thumbs up emoji, does that make a deal? And the court ruled, yes, they had a binding contract because this farmer sent a a thumbs up emoji. Um, Now, I don't know if we've had any case. I I did look into Georgia cases and the word emoji appears in about 80 cases already. Wow. Um, I'm shocked by that. Usually in the context of a witness testifying often in a criminal case. They use the text messages or there are emojis in a lot of cases. But I didn't find any case that that says an emoji can make a binding contract. We may have it coming to a Georgia court soon. I don't know. Um, But I think I don't use typically use a lot of emojis. um, But I think they can be so ambiguous and uh, open to interpretation. I mean, Thumbs up could have been you're out of here like well, an umpire. <laughs> I think that yeah, and I think the uh, 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 the actual what that emoji is called is like like I like that, mm. and mm-hmm. uh, so you could like that fact but not be agreeing to it. You know, uh, uh, it's it's uh, it's certainly certainly interesting. It is interesting. I, I do have one other thing I want to mention. I, I At the beginning of the show, I did mention and called Lester Distinguished because he had just received an award of a Distinguished Leader Award. And I just want to share with our our, our listeners and our audience, um, there was a question and answer that Lester gave to the paper. And I thought some of his comments were fantastic. And I wanted to share them with you. Um, and here's what Lester said as a Distinguished uh, Leader. It is the tradition of the trial bar that sustains me today. The men and women who are in court day in and day out fighting for justice. Sometimes we find it and sometimes we don't, but we always make the fight and that's what counts, the fight we made. Thank you for listening to See You in Court, brought to you by the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation and the Georgia Institute of Technology. Please subscribe to this podcast and consider writing a review. You may find related documents to this week's episode on our website, cuincourt.podbean.com. Please send any questions, suggestions, or ideas to cuincourtpodcast at gmail.com. We thank Noreen Hassan, Associate Professor and Director of Outreach and Community Engagement of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and the Georgia Tech students who help bring you this podcast. I'm Fred Smith, Executive Director of the Georgia Civil Justice Foundation. You may learn more about the foundation at fairplay.org. On behalf of Robin Fraser clark and Lester Tate, until our next episode, we'll see you in court.